Greetings, Bibliophiles, to five author, author questions or FAQ presented by the Kalamazoo Public Library. This podcast that attempts to delve into the minds of writers using only five questions. I'm Sandra Farrick, Head of Youth Services, and I'm joined by... Kevin King, Head of Community Engagement. So we're finally joining the social media world, and we have an Instagram and Twitter handle uh, we wanted to share with everyone. It's um, at 5 author questions and that's the same handle for both Instagram and Twitter uh, at five author questions. And then our email is podcast P O D C A S T S at KPL.gov. And we should tell them that they should spell out five, that it's not oh, yeah. the number five. That's true. Thank you. <laughs> spell out five. So I am honored to introduce our guest today on five AQ. Um, it's, I just want to tell the story of how I, I, I got to meet and, and read this great book. So Ty, our guest, is friends with a, a teen who used to come to the library when I was the teen librarian here. So it makes me feel old. <laughs> you should feel old. I am, because I am old. But Well, that too. Yeah, exactly. So Ty McCormick <laughs> is an editor at Foreign Affairs, the magazine published by the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. A former foreign correspondent in Nairobi, and before that, in Cairo, he has reported from more than a dozen countries in Africa and the Middle East. From 2015 to 2018, he served as African editor of Foreign Policy magazine, where he led a team of reporters that won a Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award for a series on African migration. He's also written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Newsweek, New Republic, National Geographic, among others. Uh, Beyond the Sand and Sea, his first book, is about a family of Somali refugees, 30-year odyssey to reach the United States. Welcome, Ty. Thank you. So good to meet you. And, um, you know, the format of this is we ask you five questions. Um, five, we, we decided a long time ago <laughs> that follow-up questions don't count towards those five. So, uh, ah, okay. So don't, don't worry. Don't count. People shouldn't count at home. That's kind of what we said. It's Fair a, enough. Okay. So what was the catalyst for this book? Sure. So I, I think I should start by saying that uh, the book follows uh, what I think anyway is, is really an epic story of uh, a family uh, of Somali refugees and their 30-year journey to reach the United States. And it follows mainly a brother and a sister uh, whose incredible bond and, and love and support for one another see them through this ordeal. Uh, in a broader sense, it's, it's the story of our broken UN refugee resettlement system, which uh, effectively has turned something like 12 million people around the world into uh, permanent exiles. The UN would call them uh, victims of a protracted refugee crisis. Um, I call them permanent exiles. Um, so there were really kind of two catalysts, I would say, uh, for the book. Uh, or rather, there was a moment uh, when the book became possible, when the idea of writing about these kinds of refugee crises that are extended over many generations kind of started rattling around in my head. Um, and then there was a the moment when I knew I wanted to write this book about this particular refugee family. And the, the first moment um, happened in the summer of 2015, uh, when I visited Dadaab refugee camp uh, in Northeast Kenya for the first time. Um, at the time, I was, as you mentioned, the Africa editor uh, at Foreign Policy, which is a small American magazine owned by the former Washington Post company. And uh, at the time, my job was essentially to rove the African continent and look for stories. And sometimes I wrote those stories myself, and sometimes I commissioned them from other uh, journalists. And that summer, um, the Kenyan government 
started threatening to close Dadaab, which was then the largest refugee camp in the world, um, and to expel its hundreds of thousands of, of residents and send them back to Somalia. Um, so I flew there on a, on a UN flight from Nairobi, and even from the air, you can tell there's something otherworldly about this place. Um, you're flying along, and below you, there's just this vast nothingness, you know, reddish-orange sand, short parched shrubs, not a road or a human being visible for miles. Um, and then all of a sudden, you kind of cross this invisible line, and thousands upon thousands of little white specks appear, tents you know, that are stretching to the horizon as far as the eye can see. And then you realize, you know, this place has looked basically the same for three decades. It was set up in 1992, a year after Somalia collapsed into civil war. And it's, you know, it's essentially uh, unchanged as the second and third generation of of people are living in these same uh, makeshift dwellings without electricity, without running water um, in a settlement the size of New Orleans, um, you know, and these people aren't allowed to leave. So that's when I really started to think about, you know, writing a book about these kinds of extended crises that, um, you know, that last for multiple generations. The second, you know, more immediate catalyst for the book came two and a half years later uh, when I met Assad, one of the main figures in the book, um, for the first time. It was, a, it was a few days after Trump issued his travel ban, the infamous Muslim ban. Um, and I knew that Dadaab would be one of the places most affected by it. Uh, later, it would turn out that 14,000 people from the camp were at some stage of the resettlement process to come to the U.S. And all of them were suddenly thrown into limbo because of Trump's executive order. So I reached out to a a young man that I followed on Twitter, actually, who had written a short article in the New York Times um, about growing up in Dadaab previously. And the the article had appeared about, you know, three or four months beforehand. Uh, And never in a million years did I think he was still stranded in the camp. I assumed he had been you know, one of the lucky few who either was resettled or won a scholarship to study abroad. But it, it turned out that his family's was one of the families that was affected by the ban um, and that they had been waiting for almost 14 years since the UN had promised them resettlement in the US and almost 26 years, in fact, since his parents had fled the war in Somalia. Uh, so Assad ended up writing this article for me uh, about his own family. Um, and since he didn't have a bank account, we actually met in person so that uh, we could discuss the article and so that I could bring him a wad of cash as payment. Wow. Um, and almost immediately as he sort of started telling me the story of his life about you know, the broken promises, the false starts, um, and all of the ways that he'd sort of overcome these setbacks and these obstacles, uh, you know, giving himself a kind of great books education from the texts that had been donated by American charities and such. Um, I knew that I was listening to something special and that maybe I would want to write about it at some point. So, you know, in fact, after the very first meeting, I, I went home and I typed up four or five pages of notes. And probably deep down at that point, I knew that I was writing the first pages of research for the book. So uh, just a quick follow-up. One of the, it, today we, people struggle with the neutrality of the press. And uh, I, one of the things I found extremely refreshing is, I mean, you didn't really break the fourth wall, but in some ways you kind of told the reader in the book, I struggled with that. I struggled with neutrality in this story, which I thought was honest. And it really um, emphasized the, the, your feelings and the plight of Assad. And I really appreciated that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, objectivity is this, it's a standard we strive for in the press, but it's one we never you know, really achieve. I think mm-hmm. anybody who's being honest will tell you that 
a reporter brings their own biases to any story. Um, and so it's more about trying to keep them in view and maybe being honest about them with, mm -hmm. with the reader and not trying to present yourself as this neutral arbiter, but rather, um, you know, putting it all on the table. And so, you know, the longer you spend with a subject too, the more impossible it becomes to oh, yeah. treat them. Uh, you end up forming an incredibly close relationship with the people that you um, cover. And that was, you know, that was inevitable. And, 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 you know, one of the wonderful things about getting to know Assad and his family is, you know, he became essentially part of my family. And so that comes through in the book. You know, it totally not, comes through in the book. It's not meant just, to be yeah. an objective study. I was just going to say that it comes through in the book. If it, was, if it was an objective story, it wouldn't have been as good of a book. I mean, it just would have been kind of like a story. Uh, you know, it's just like a newspaper story you read on Sunday. But no, well, I, thank you. I appreciate that. I really thought it was beautiful. So question two. Tell us about someone who is better than you in an area that truly matters to you and why. Well, that's going to be a long list of people. <laughs> um, people who have had the biggest influence on my writing, which I think is another way of saying people who are better than me at something I care about. Um, a lot of them come out of a kind of particular tradition of narrative nonfiction. Um, people like Tracy Kidder, who wrote Mountains Beyond Mountains, mm -hmm. uh, Strength in What Remains, among very many other very good books. Um, Adrian Nicola Blanc, who wrote Random Family, Darcy Frey, author of uh, The Last Shot. It's a beautiful book about a high school basketball team in, in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, Richard Todd, who edited all of the writers I just mentioned uh, and wrote his own beautiful uh, meditation on authenticity called The, the Thing Itself. Um, what all of these writers have in common, I think, is a kind of simple, understated, unassuming style in which the narrator almost never overshadows the narrative. Uh, in the very best of their writing, the narrator disappears entirely, and the story seems to almost propel itself along. It's it's an illusion, of course. A great deal of heavy lifting goes into all of that effortlessness. But uh, I suppose it's like watching an Olympic athlete. You know, you mm -hmm. uh, you don't see the grueling training that prepares them for that day. It's just effortless. You know, it's the virtuosity of of watching somebody at that level race. Um, and so that's the kind of simple, straightforward style of storytelling that I've sort of always aspired to and no doubt fall short of. Um, and in particular, the, in parts one and parts two of the book, where I tell the story from the point of view of the characters, alternating back and forth between Assad, his sister Marion, and, and their friend Becker and some of the other uh, minor characters. Um, you know, I did quite a lot of research for the book, hundreds of, hundreds of hours of interviews, um, a lot of sorting through medical records, resettlement papers, other documents. Um, but I tried not to let that weigh down the narrative too much. Mm -hmm. You know, the reader doesn't need to know necessarily how I got to the story. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of people would just prefer that I get out of the way so that <laughs> the story can unfold in a kind of natural way. Um, so that's how I approached parts one and parts two of the book. Uh, part three, I rewind and tell the whole story again from my perspective. Um, it's a kind of double chronology. So uh, with me as a guide in the final section, I suppose, there's no escaping me as the narrator. Yeah. Um, I agree. I, I love the, as a, it's funny as a librarian, we have this natural instinct to want to research and look into things and go, well, how did he get that information? But, and I sometimes feel I'm doing that when I'm reading, but it didn't, didn't at all for you. I just want to know what was happening next to the characters and you're right. Good. Um, that was, that was mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, and I think the writers that you, 
um, just mentioned that you're, you're absolutely correct. They are ones that do that so well that, you know, you, you write this nonfiction in a way that if you get done with it and you're like, Oh my gosh, I just forgot. I read a nonfiction book. So, all right. Question number three, how do you practice self-care? Oh man, self-care. I, I, <laughs> I'm a journalist covering foreign affairs. So that's pretty much <laughs> the opposite of uh-huh. self-care, right? Yeah. Well, um, I'll be honest. I, you know, I'm not great at self-care mm-hmm. uh, unless you count red wine and the occasional gin and tonic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do try to go for runs uh, as often as I can. Uh, I find they help to uh, clear my mind. Um, what else? Uh, I like to read thrillers and spy novels oh. that uh, maybe I should be more embarrassed about than I am. No, nope. no, no, no. Not at all. You never should be embarrassed about what you read. Good. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Le Carre, David mm-hmm. Ignatius, even, you know, even like a Robert Ludlum uh, mm-hmm. kind of thing you might pick up in a Hudson News in the airport. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, you know, how I miss airports in this era. Of, oh, yeah. <laughs> my God. What I would give for a, for a two-hour flight delay these days. A good yeah. book, a magazine, maybe a mediocre coffee. That's funny. Um, Last night, Seth Meyers said he, he, would, he would give anything to just stand in line at a DMV. <laughs> there you go. That was good. Maybe that's his way of practicing self-care. <laughs> exactly. So. Okay. Well, who is your favorite hero and why? hero man there are so many so many possibilities so many directions i could go here um i think the person who stands out both for her courage and for the inspiration she's given to other people myself included uh is yusra mardini um you might remember her from the 2016 olympics in rio uh where she competed as part of the first ever refugee olympic team um 10 athletes from all around the world who had you know, essentially lost their home countries to civil war and who competed under the Olympic flag instead. Um, at the time, I, I became quite interested in the story, uh, both because I love the Olympics. Um, my dad was an Olympian and I grew up sort of steeped in the mythology of the event, you know, faster, higher, stronger. I, I'm still moved by the, the idealism of the games. Um, but I was also particularly interested in it because four or five, I can't remember, of, of the 10 athletes on the team came from refugee camps in Kenya, uh, where I was living at the time. And I got to meet some of them. I did a story on one of them for the Washington Post. Um, But Yusra Mardini's story was different. Um, She grew up in what I think was a relatively middle-class background in Syria. Um, She was a competitive swimmer, and she dreamed of representing her country at the Olympics. Um, But the war upended those dreams, and she and her sister were smuggled out of the country uh, to Turkey, I think, and took one of those flimsy little boats you see across the Aegean to Greece. And uh, the motor failed along the way. The boat was overcrowded. I think there were 20 or so people on there, some of whom couldn't swim. And uh, Yusra and her sister, I think, who was also a competitive swimmer, took turns swimming in the freezing cold water, towing this tiny little boat behind them until finally, uh, I think someone got the motor running again and and everyone on the boat survived. Um, And in the end, you know, Yusra ended up on the refugee Olympic team and I and 400 million other people watching television around the world watched as she, you know, walked into the Olympic stadium at the opening ceremony and then cheered as she won her heat in the hundred meter butterfly. So, uh, she's one of my heroes and, uh, just an incredible gutsy, courageous woman. Yeah. I forgot. I, I'm glad you reminded me. I totally forgot about that in the Olympics. That was a really touching moment to see that. Um, so we're on question number five. 
If you could pick a theme song for your life, what would you choose? You know, I just finished listening to Patrick Radden Keefe's podcast, uh, mm-hmm. The Wind of Change. Have you guys listened to that? No, I haven't. It's it's amazing. I can't I can't recommend it enough. But it's a it's about the Scorpions, you know, the Scorpions band, um, <laughs> uh, and a, a, particularly about a song uh, called "Wind of Change." Yeah, so that, that's the name of the t- podcast. <laughs> yes, and rather bizarrely, whether uh, that song may have been written by the CIA. Oh. Um, but for weeks anyway, I have not been able to get that song out of my head. So I feel like I have an involuntary theme song, one that I did get <laughs> now comes with me everywhere. An earworm song. It is an earworm. Does it apply to different parts of your life? Sorry? Does it apply to different parts of your life? Well, you know, as far as theme songs go, I think I could do worse. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's about the yeah. changes that swept through the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War. It's about the end of communism, the dawn of a more sort of hopeful democratic era. It's cheesy, I think, mm-hmm. you know, when you listen to it now, I'm not much into 80s hair metal, but uh, I'm sticking with it. You know, it chose me as a theme song, so I think I'll choose it back. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Dance with the person who brought you to the prom. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm sure our listeners would love to know what are you working on now or what's coming up next for you? Well, I'm going to try to survive promoting this book before I uh, think about writing anything else. Uh, (laughs) It's been a four year labor of love and completely exhausting process. So uh, forgive me if I say I haven't even thought about what's next. That's fair. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I just want to say there, there is so much good, uh, re- so many good reviews, I should say, coming from this book. Congratulations. And, you know, after I read it, I, I was passing it off to people. I said, you know, I gave it to my wife, said, you have to read this next. Um, so it's making the, the, the galley is making the rounds in my neighborhood right now. So um, love the book. I just well, I really it. appreciate it. And I appreciate you're uh, making time for me on the podcast. And, yeah. Uh, you know, bringing it to readers at your library. So yeah, well, thank you. that being said, I just want to say to our listeners that, Ty will be talking about this book on May 20th uh, on www.kpl.gov. We're doing a live author visit program featuring Ty. And so you can go to our website and uh, get more information on that and register. Um, We'll get the full rundown of the book, which, um, you know, I hope you get to read beforehand and uh, that I'm really excited for people to, to get their hands on. So any last final words before we wrap it up there, Ty? You know, join us then. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully you get to read a little bit from the book and talk more about it and take some of your questions. So thank you. Thank you, Ty. Thank thanks, you. For, thanks for making time for us. Thanks. So thanks for listening to another episode of Five Author Questions presented by the Kalamazoo Public Library. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you do not miss an episode. Finally, we leave you with a quote from David Bowie. As you get older... The questions come down to about two or three. How long and what do you do with the time I've got left? Bye, everyone.